This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, casting director Allison Jones. The Barbie movie is just the latest example of why she's considered one of the greatest comedy casting directors of our time. She's credited with having helped usher in a new era of comedy, casting films and TV shows like Freaks and Geeks, The Office, Veeb, Curb Your Enthusiasm, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and Bridesmaids. Also, why jazz was banned in Hitler's Germany and how it was repurposed as propaganda using existing catchy swing tunes with rewritten repellent Nazi lyrics intended to weaken British and American resolve. We talk with NPR's Scott Simon about his new audio book, Swing Time for Hitler. And Maureen Corrigan reviews Lauren Groff's new novel, The Vaster Wilds. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsAndFoster.com. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. The movies Barbie, Lady Bird, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Superbad, Knocked Up, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, Borat, and Bridesmaids, and the TV shows Veep, Parks and Recreation, The Office, The Good Place, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Freaks and Geeks, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. All these shows and movies have one person in common, someone who is instrumental in creating their personalities. Unless you're in the industry, you probably don't know her name. It's Allison Jones, a casting director credited with finding the actors who helped usher in a new era of TV and movie comedies, working with directors like Judd Apatow, Paul Feig, and Adam McKay. She likes casting people who look like real people and aren't necessarily gorgeous, handsome, and hot, but are truly funny. In a New Yorker profile back in 2015, headlined The Nerd Hunter, she was described as reshaping comedy one misfit at a time. In just one show, Freaks and Geeks, she cast the then-unknown Seth Rogen, Jason Segel, Lizzie Kaplan, Linda Cardellini, and James Franco. Her favorite job was Family Ties. It was her first job working as a casting assistant. Allison Jones, welcome to Fresh Air. What a pleasure to have you on the show. You cast so many people who I love in so many films and TV shows I love. Uh, What amazing career and life you've had so far. Uh, Thank you so much. I just want to start by saying you're not in SAG-AFTRA, you're not in the Writers Guild, you're not on strike, um, so it's okay for you to be here, but the actors you work with are on strike. What has your life been like during the strike? Uh, Pretty quiet. Yeah. I've I've been idle. Um... I I honk in unison with all the people driving by the strikers over at Paramount, especially in Netflix. Um, But it's unsettling, and I think I'm getting a little concerned about work coming back, hopefully soon. You're credited with being a key figure in casting people for what was then a new era of comedy. TV shows without laugh tracks, TV shows with more nerdy characters, um, casting actors who aren't hot aren't necessarily <laughs> hot. You know, some of yes. them were hot, but, you know. Yes. You cast Not always. people who yeah. look like real people. Uh, and Freaks and Geeks is a great example. Uh-huh. Um, how did your approach on that show, because that's one of the early shows that you did that was a new era of comedy, how did your approach on that show compare to how things 
were typically done in the past? Well, I had, prior to Freaks and Geeks coming along, I had done a pilot called Roswell High at the time, and then I think the show became Roswell. And that is where we had to have the best-looking people in the world that we could get who were older to play younger. And, you know, I recall testing Heath Ledger for that, and the studio people said he wasn't good-looking or hot enough, which, of course, is (laughs) insane, (laughs) and at the age of 19. Um, So... Paul and Judd instantly said, none of that. We just want kids who look like they're in high school. They can be tiny. They can be, you know, funky looking. They can be whatever, but we don't want the beautiful kids. And from the get-go, I think I got that. So pretty much I brought in, I don't want to say reject, but all the kids that weren't accepted by um, the show Roswell High, which I had done prior to that, or a show called 1973, which was a pilot not picked up by Universal Television, where I had met people like, Ben Foster and Jason Siegel and James Franco and these kids who were so great, still maybe 18 or 19 or 17, um, that would not have gotten by the um, studio standards of great-looking high school kid. That was number one, none of that. So I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> so yeah. tell me what you saw in Jason Siegel. First of all, he was a really good actor. I, I love Jason some... Siegel. Let me Oh, he's the that. best. Yeah. And he came in, I think he was a senior at Harvard-Westlake. And just a really, really good actor. And so I brought him in a few times. And what I liked about him was his approachability, and he had a great sense of humor. Um, Also in comedy, you have to read so many people to find the people who are genuinely funny. More than dramatic actors? And if so, why? Well, I think it's just sort of a different... i got to say comedy is harder, (laughs) I think, to write, to act, to be funny even in real life. So um, especially when they're younger... And Freaks and Geeks was a different kind of show. It was, well, it was an hour, what we would then have called single camera, as opposed to multicam, which was the half-hour sitcom where it was a completely different kind of delivering of jokes. It was jokey. Um, Single camera was like doing nothing. My direction for all the single camera stuff was do less, do less, do less. And comedy, I think, is just harder because comedy actors doing drama is a more likely scenario than Dramatic actors doing the kind of comedy I've often had to look for. Um, And also the comedy shows have evolved since people like Judd Apatow and Paul Feig came on board because they were willing to have actors improvise. Adam McKay as well, Mitch Hurwitz, all these comedy great people, Christopher Guest, want these people to bring their comedy talents to the scene as opposed to when I was working in sitcoms. Everything was heavily written. And if an actor went off of a line and didn't say the line as written, it was like, whoa, that person doesn't know what they're doing. Let's talk a little bit about casting The Office. Um, Let's start with Steve Carell. He is so perfect in the role. Oh, God, yes. And, you know, because it's a mockumentary, things you had to cast for must have included being able to to kind of confide in the documentary camera. Oh, yeah. And then also being able to have these cringy looks on your faces. (laughs) Not so much Steve Carell, but all the other characters were constantly cringing because Steve Carell is the boss of Dunder Mifflin. Was... He was a, a cringe machine. I mean, everything he said was cringeworthy. <laughs> but for Steve Carell himself, he had to have this naive confidence that everything he was saying was, like, really smart and really productive, although what he was saying was typically somewhere between dumb and really offensive. But he'd <laughs> never really know it was offensive. So how do you, how do you audition somebody for those traits? Well, again, first of all, it starts with the writing. And as I recall with the pilot of The Office, I think the mandate was pretty much to make it like the pilot of The British Show, as as I recall. So even in casting, I was cognizant of what the British sort of prototypes were, though it is a way that these actors have of speaking without even thinking they're acting. Um, And also, I had seen Steve be funny in so many things and had auditioned him, thanks to Marla Garland and Jeff Garland, who, who... sent me all the great Second City people at the time um, and should be credited with all of that. Um, I think just what makes me laugh and he's, I don't know what to say, he's brilliant. He's brilliantly funny. Um, And if they sort of got the vibe without too much saying acting or overacting or trying to hit the joke, 
um, which is what you did have to do in multi-camera shows like Family Ties and Benson and even Golden Girls. All shows that you've worked on. That I was an assistant on, yeah. Um, interesting about Steve Carell, his character was really over the top, but he knew how to do it in a very realistic way. And those two thoughts are hard to find together. But as they all did, we had a um, two days of testing for that show, and we had a lot of people up for the role of Michael Scott. And, you know, I've said before that two people that came down to were um, Bob Odenkirk and Steve Carell, both of whom understood this comedy in their DNA, I believe, and, and especially Bob Odenkirk, who I think many, many current comedy writers and actors Oh, a huge debt, too, because of Mr. Show. That would be David Cross and Bob Odenkirk. One of the people you cast on The Office was an associate from your own casting office. Oh, yes. Phyllis Smith, who played yes. Phyllis yes. on the show. So I want you to describe Phyllis. I'll start by saying she was somebody who was kind of an outsider in The Office. She wasn't one of the hip people. She was one of the uncool people. She was middle-aged. She was kind of frumpy. You want to take it from there in describing her? Yeah, she was all of those things, yes, as the character. And I think, yeah, she worked as my associate for six or seven years, and she'd been casting for about 20 years. And when we were casting the pilot of The Office over at Universal, the gifted director, Ken Quapis, said to me, let Phyllis read with some of these actors because I want to see how she sounds. I think she'd be great in the background. So I said, great. Um, we were jumping up and down. So Phyllis read with the actors. She was terrific. Ken Quaffet, meaning she, you couldn't tell she was acting nothing. She was just Phyllis, which is what we were looking for for all the background people in the office. And she got hired to do, you know, one, I think one day or so for the pilot of the office. And Greg Daniels generously called her Phyllis. Um, I think she had one or two lines. And again, Phyllis and I were jumping up and down because she was going to get paid 650 bucks for the day or something. And that was huge back then. And the rest is history with Phyllis. She came back to work for me in casting. The show got picked up. I think she still worked for me for the first five episodes or so. But then it was picked up for more episodes and she was able to be a regular on the show. Right. So one of, one of the things Phyllis does is she, she speaks in cliches and platitudes. So I want to play a scene. It, it's raining hard outside. And uh, Jim, John Krasinski, uh -huh. point, points out like how many cliches she has about rain. And, she's, <laughs> and he says, like, if she says 12 cliches about rain before noon, I'm going to buy before noon, I'm going to buy everybody a hot chocolate. So Phyllis comes in from out of the rain. And here's how it starts. Wow, it is raining cats and dogs out there. Holy moly. Phyllis says the same 12 cliches every time it rains. So, I promised everyone that if she says them all by noon today, I will send out for hot chocolates. So how's the drive in? Uh, nobody knows how to drive in the rain. You don't say. Yeah. You know, the roads are actually the slickest in the first half hour. I think it's the oil that comes to the surface. I agree. Oh. The plants are going to love this. Yeah. I actually sleep better when it's raining. Tell me about it. Time's almost up. How many are left? Just one. This weather makes me want to stay at home curled up with a good book. Phyllis, this rain, does it make you want to be doing something? What do you mean? You know, like, aren't some things just so nice and cozy in the rain? Hey, come on. Lots of things are cozy in the rain. And that's noon. Exactly. Sorry about that, everybody. Hey, Phyllis, would you like a hot chocolate? Oh, I love one. I'm going out to get two hot chocolates. I mean, normally the rain would make me want to stay at home curled up with a good book, but everybody's being so nice to me today. I'm really happy being here. <laughs> so she says <laughs> she says that, like, 12th cliche, afternoon. <laughs> so he's just buying a hot chocolate right. for, for himself and for Phyllis. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, that's a great scene. Um, so she was like... Your coworker, she worked in your office. She worked for you. What would it have been like for you if she got the part and then wasn't very good at it? Like, would that have broken your heart? Yes, I would. Because she was oh, great. Awful. She was perfect in it. Yeah, she was perfect. I think also because it was organic. They liked Phyllis first before the character. So I think, yeah, she was great. And also she pulled it off. I had no idea if that would happen. It would have been, yes, I would have felt awful. <laughs> Did you think of her as somebody who was naturally funny? Because that's something that you always looked for. No. 
in a word, no. But very, very guileless and very appealing, sort of like a, a junior high math teacher or something, somebody who you would see every day but not really notice or, or pay much attention to. And no, I would not think of Phyllis as naturally funny, no. But boy, she got it. So like on The Office with Pam and Jim, they mm-hmm. just seem like such a natural couple. And then when John yes. Krasinski, who plays Jim, married Emily Blunt, I thought, Mm-mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's like Jim and Pam. I don't, I don't know yes, if these two right, go together. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you feel when someone like me reacts that way? That The I casting was fantastic. so good that I couldn't imagine either of them with anybody else. Yes, exactly. No, I appreciate that. Thank you, Terry. Oh, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> so did you have to cast for cringy expressions? Like, like who's got the best, funniest, cringy expressions? No, but if they threw one in, I would certainly remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them were smart enough when they auditioned to sort of glance at the camera occasionally, again, thanks to the British office. But that kind of blew me away, that they were will- that they were smart enough to do that in their auditions. And again, it was... I believe the very first comedy that I worked on where we did the auditions on tape and sent them to the network to look at that way because the show was so understated and it wasn't a one, two, three, you know, punchline kind of a show. You couldn't go into a room and speak loudly enough to project to 12 or 15 faces staring at you and make it seem like you were going to be good on the show of The Office. Basically, on The Office, you're just talking basically above a mumble, and that would be very hard just technically to even convey. Yes, when you wanted to see these people, you wanted to see them being real people and talking to the camera or glancing at the camera. So we had two days of sort of screen testing and mixing and matching actors for all the roles, some of whom now are very famous, (laughs) Um, people who would come in, and it was a blast doing it at the time. Uh, because we got to actually sit there and, and witness the different combinations of the actors. My guest is casting director Allison Jones. Her latest movie is Barbie. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and Maureen Corrigan will review Lauren Groff's new novel, The Vaster Wilds. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to my interview with casting director Allison Jones. The movies and TV shows she's cast include Barbie, Lady Bird, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Superbad, Knocked Up, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, Borat, and Bridesmaids, and the TV shows Veep, The Office, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Freaks and Geeks, and many more. Um, I want to talk with you about the early shows you worked at and what network comedies were like then. Um, So you were an assistant casting director on Family Ties. And my understanding is that casting director really had to fight to get Michael J. Fox cast on the show. What were the executives reluctant about? What did they object to about Michael J. Fox, who became the star of the show? I can only guess 
that the oft-quoted phrase from Gary Goldberg, who said, I'm never going to, or Brandon Tartikoff said, I'm never going to see him in a lunchbox. I think they just thought he wasn't <laughs> a leading actor at the time. Oh, he was on and, so many lunchboxes. Yes, I'm sure he was on many lunchboxes. I th- I'm just going to surmise, even though I wasn't there, and from what I've read, Gary David Goldberg saying and Judith saying, that uh, they just didn't think he was a leading man. And, of course, Ju- Judith saw how funny he was. So she, I think she had uh, heated conversations with Gary about they need to hire Michael J. Fox. Um, so it was him not being the definition of a leading man. Then, of course, comedies all wanted the next Michael J. Fox, which evolved into the next Steve Carell or the next so-and-so to come along. But he became the archetype of all the sitcoms that came along, frankly. Um, But that's when I saw and heard what a good casting director does and offers to a project. So elaborate on that. Well, I think a good casting director or any casting director, we all fight for the choices that we think are right for the project and... A lot of times it's the first person we think of when we read a script. Now it's a lot harder to find people available to do projects, so you're doing a lot of legwork. And a lot of shows. Oh God, yeah. There's so many more shows. I'm sure at that time it was between one or maybe two people for for a lead role in a, a sitcom anyway. And that has evolved to having so many levels of having to tap dance through till you get to someone at the network or the head of the network approving an actor to be in a show. So, um, and, and I know you were casting during this era, which is kind of still going on, but not as badly as it was, where you would cast an older actor, say Clint Eastwood, Burt Lancaster, uh, opposite a younger woman, a much younger, like decades younger. <laughs> Drives me crazy. Has always driven me crazy, yes. Yeah, so did you mm-hmm. ever, like, does it say... In those scripts, or do executives say to you, he can, you know, the movie is based around his star power, but the female star has to be much younger and like super gorgeous. Oh, it drove me crazy just as a fan of all these movies that a, a man was married to a woman young enough to be his almost his granddaughter. Um, but um, I don't even think that's changed that much. I think all these movie stars have much younger wives and things. But it used to drive me really crazy. In the comedy world, yes, they would always have, you know, a a goofball guy, the lead guy, and his girlfriend was gorgeous. And yeah. the scripts would often describe them as a girl next door, but who's astonishingly gorgeous and doesn't know it. Um, I did every pilot that came my way back in the day, in the 80s. I did every pilot. I was glad to have any work. And then eventually I started passing on a few of those because none of those women were good enough. I mean, that some of these actresses that producers and directors would comment on not being pretty enough, like, I'm not going to say. But anyway, it would be astonishing to me how, and I will come out and say it, they were judged by their looks and by their legs. And, you know, if they needed a push-up bra or something, it was pretty, pretty astonishing. And that has changed, thank God. Not in theory. I think... <laughs> Studios and executives and financiers still think the female – a lot of movies right up until today have, have the wives or the girlfriends or whatever much younger than the male lead and someone who wouldn't be in the same universe as these guys. Talk about being out of your league. I mean, these, especially in comedies where, you know, God bless them, the guys aren't in real life going to actually get these women. Were your standards of what makes a beautiful woman different from, like, male executive standards? Completely. I think think we were all, I mean, Elizabeth Banks, come on, Brie Larson, come on. They were all rejected in projects I was doing because studios just didn't think they were leading women. And that always blew my mind because I thought frequently they were sort of too pretty for a part. But on the other hand, they were brilliantly funny and able to do the job. And yes, very different standards. One more question. Um, I hate running into people who we've declined to have on the show. It really, it just pains me. I just feel so uncomfortable. Um, and I'm wondering if you experience that. Oh, that all the you, time. That you run into actors who, who you've turned down and then you're at a party or a dinner or run into them at the supermarket or whatever. How do you deal with that? 
most likely at the supermarket or a coffee place. I would agree with what you say. It's very awkward and I feel terrible and I feel the need to, if it comes up, to explain why they didn't get the part. Like, by the way, you were too young when you came in for that, that kind of thing. I'll frequently say that. Because actors don't really get much feedback. It's it's kind of the lowest priority. We have the less time to give feedback and they get no feedback and I think they don't get any real feedback from the people who manage them or who are their agents. And they want that, and sometimes it's a real reason. You know, you think of a real reason why they didn't get it. So, yes, it's, it's excruciating. Do you stay away from parties because of that? <laughs> I'm just not social. I'm a little little bit of an introvert. But, um, you know, the worst thing I ever had to do, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, was to tell Bob Odenkirk he didn't get the office. It was just horrible. I didn't tell Bob in person, but I had to tell his agent that he, that he didn't get the office. And that was, how do you turn down Bob Odenkirk? But that was the worst thing I've ever had to do. How did you do it? I think I just had to preface it with, I'm sorry to say, but we're not going with Bob for the office. And it was awful. If you ran into Bob Odenkirk at the supermarket, are you going to be okay? Yes, I'm going to be okay. (laughs) I'm going to be okay. But believe me, I'm not not going to think of that. So I will immediately think of, oh, God, the office. Alison Jones, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's great to be talked with about it, believe me. Allison Jones is a casting director. Her latest movie is Barbie. Lauren Groff has been a finalist for the National Book Award three times. Her new novel, The Vaster Wilds, tells a harrowing story of an escape from Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement in what later became the U.S. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, has a review. Robinson Crusoe, generally considered to be the first novel in English, is also the granddaddy of survivor sagas. Crusoe the castaway spends decades on his proverbial desert island, crafting what actually turns out to be a very pleasant existence. His days are spent catching turtles and goats, making clothes, furniture, and a canoe, even journaling. Lauren Groff has said that Robinson Crusoe is one of the inspirations for her new historical novel, The Vaster Wilds. But her heroine's extreme adventure in the forest primeval of pre-colonial America makes Crusoe's stint on his island seem like an all-inclusive vacation package at Club Med. The Vaster Wilds is set in the fledgling Jamestown colony around the winter of 1609 to 1610, a period known to historians as the Starving Time, because over 80% of the colonists died of disease and famine. Groff's main character doesn't have a name. She was abandoned at birth in England, and then at age four, she was removed from the poorhouse to work as a servant for a prosperous family. She's mostly called girl, wench, or worse, and she was simply taken along like baggage when the patriarch of the family she works for is lured by visions of the wealth of the new world. The novel opens on what's possibly the girl's first autonomous act. She escapes from the primitive fort at Jamestown. We're told that, in the tall black wall of the palisade, through a slit too seeming thin for human passage, the girl climbed into the great and terrible wilderness. Why she runs away? is a question that hovers in the chill air until the very end of this novel, which turns out to be a test of endurance for the girl and for us readers as well. Equipped with a stolen hatchet, flint, warm cape, and boots, courtesy of a boy who's just died from smallpox, the girl runs. The girl runs and runs because, as she tells herself, If I stop, I will die. She runs through needles of ice that turn into down-sifting snow, which she's thankful for because it covers her footprints. One of the very early satisfying twists in this story occurs when the sadistic soldier who's dispatched to capture the girl 
is quickly engulfed by the violence lurking in the wilderness. Thanks to Groff's omniscient narrator, we readers know the soldier is a goner, but the girl herself never catches on that she's running from nobody. As the girl runs, sheltering in exhaustion in caves and hollowed-out tree trunks, she survives close brushes with wild beasts, as well as two native men and a half-man, half-beast, crazed Jesuit priest. Here's a tiny sampling of Groff's extended description of what 40 years alone in the wilderness have done to this priest. Human eyes were embedded within a matted mass of hair from the scalp, which had grown all together into the hair from the beard and the back and the shoulders and chest, so that he wore a filthy, seedy, twiggy tunic out of which lower arms and legs did poke. The meat he ate was raw. All this time, he was full of worms. I always like to check out Groff's latest novels because she's such an evocative writer who always sets herself the challenge of doing something different. The domestic fiction of Fates and Furies was followed by the medieval historical fiction of The Matrix, which in turn is now followed by the eerie survival story of the vaster wilds. What would it be like to run away? without knowing if there were any place to run to. That's the question that seems to impel the vaster wilds. With vivid exactitude, Groff dramatizes the answer. The ordeal would be terrifying, raw, brutal, and it must be acknowledged kind of exhausting in its repetitiveness. Groff tries to offset the monotony of this marathon run of a plot by including flashbacks to the girl's hard life in England, and less successfully, by having the girl formulate clumsy cultural commentary about the machinery of domination that was the English settlement of the New World. The deliverance offered by the vaster wilds may be more realistic than Robinson Crusoe's fortunate flagging down of a passing ship. But perhaps it's not too sentimental to wish that all that running could have ended in something more. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff. Coming up, why jazz was banned in Hitler's Germany, but popular swing tunes were rewritten with repellent Nazi lyrics and used as propaganda intended to weaken British and American resolve. We'll talk with Scott Simon about his new audiobook, Swing Time for Hitler. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way, stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper how to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling, trying to find humanity, or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Degenerate. That's what the Hitler regime called modern art, and jazz. Jazz was especially hated because it was considered music by Jews and black people. So the Third Reich outlawed jazz, but they also tried to use it as a weapon to weaken British and American resolve. They took popular tunes, rewrote the lyrics to belittle British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and American President Franklin Roosevelt, and of course to demean black people and Jewish people. 
These songs were played on the radio broadcast to Britain and the U.S. Scott Simon, the host of NPR's Weekend Edition Saturday, has a new audiobook about how the Nazis repurposed jazz into propaganda. I love the title of Scott's audiobook, Swing Time for Hitler, which is, of course, a play on the Mel Brooks comic production number, Springtime for Hitler, from his musical The Producers. Scott was formerly an NPR reporter and reported from war zones and heard propaganda in those contexts, but nothing like Nazi swing songs. His new audiobook is available at scribd.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D dot com. Scott, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's so good to talk to you. It's been a long time. (laughs) So good to talk to you. Yes, thank you so much, Terry. So good to be with you. I think we should start with a disclaimer about how offensive these songs are and why it's important to hear them anyway. I'm going to let you do that. I I will, you know, and we had the advantage of having the legend Bill Curtis give voice to uh, our trigger warning at the very top saying... The following songs you're going to hear are in many ways offensive and contain racial slurs. They are also tuneful and easy to dance to uh, because, of course, it's jazz and swing music. But there is no getting around the fact that um, that these, these lyrics are offensive. And why should we hear them anyway? Because I think it's, it's very good to try and understand what Nazi propaganda was trying to do. Uh, at least in this case, it was not. It was different than some other propaganda efforts they had. Radio was considered to be just part of the war offensive uh, by Dr. Goebbels. He considered it. I think he called it the most powerful medium uh, in the world. And and Germany was certain to uh, have government-approved and government-manufactured radio receivers uh, delivered to every German home. A fact that, by the way, was not lost on George Orwell when he sat down shortly after the war to write 1984 and put the telescreens into, into every home. And uh, the whole idea of the songs, jazz and swing orchestra music that they broadcast to uh, Britain and the United States principally, uh, but became ironically or incongruously very popular in Germany, was less to convince than to sow doubt. They knew that there was a lot of accommodationist and isolationist sentiment in uh, both the United States and the United Kingdom, both on the left and the right. And uh, they thought that they could uh, tickle this by broadcasting songs that would lampoon Americans and British people. They they never said, we're broadcasting from Berlin. They never said, this is the German viewpoint. Uh, instead, they broadcast songs that would uh, that would say, you know, I, like, uh, oh, the Germans are, yeah, with the Winston Churchill, imitating Winston Churchill, saying, the Germans are driving me crazy. I thought I had brains, but they shattered my planes. By the way, my singing is bad. It, it perhaps is not as bad as Carl Schwedler. Uh, the actual uh, the actual singer who gave voice to these songs. And um, I, I just think it is so important to hear now. Firstly, it's utterly fascinating that uh, that even the Nazis understood uh, that that they had to use one of the creations or more than one of the creations of what they called and considered degenerate culture uh, to try and reach people really across the seas, that they couldn't broadcast uh, what they consider to be Nazi and Aryan culture and have the same kind of appeal. And also, they uh, they really thought that this might be enough to massage uh, that sore point that, was, uh, that existed both in U.S. and British culture uh, and be able to find allies. So, okay, I want to play an example of this Nazi jazz. So the songs basically take the melodies and sometimes even the arrangements of the original jazz song, but with really lame but very insulting lyrics. Yeah, repellent. Repellent. Absolutely, utterly repellent. Utterly repellent. A a good example of that (laughs) is their version of Makin' Whoopi. So here's what I want to do. I want to start with the original recording by Eddie Cantor, it was recorded in 1928 or 29. It's a song that zillions of people subsequently recorded, including Ray Charles. And um, I want to play the original because, A, Eddie Cantor was Jewish, and B, the Nazi version refers to the original Eddie Cantor version. So let's start with the Eddie Cantor version of Megan Whoopi. Another bride, another June, another sunny 
So that was Eddie Cantor from the late 1920s making Whoopi. Here is the Nazi version. Same melody, but with Nazi lyrics. And you'll hear they refer to Eddie Cantor at the very beginning. And I remind you, Eddie Cantor was Jewish. And I remind you also, these lyrics are repellent. The Jews of USA have asked Eddie Cantor to write a new version of his famous old-timer, Making Whoopi. In one of his latest programs on the air, he sang the following song. Another war, another prophet, another Jewish business trick. Another season, another reason for making whoopee. A lot of dough, a lot of gold, the British Empire's being sold. We're in the money, thanks to Frankie, we're making whoopee. Washington is our ghetto, Roosevelt our king. Democracy is our motto. Think what a war can bring. We throw our German names away. We are the kikes of USA. You are the boys, folks. We are the boys, folks. We're making whoopee. Okay, so that was the Nazi propaganda version of Making Whoopee featuring Charlie and his orchestra. And the Frankie in that song refers to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, And that Nazi version was from 1942. Um, Joseph Goebbels, who was the head of propaganda under Hitler, decided to ban jazz. What did that mean exactly? How was it banned? What was it banned from? You couldn't perform it in clubs. You couldn't play it on the radio. Um, in, in theory, you couldn't even sing it in, in, in your own homes. And there were people who informed against their neighbors on that. Uh, this, this was all part of the, they banned what they considered to be what they called, at any rate, degenerate culture. So this was abstract art, impressionist art, um, anything spontaneous, surrealist, uh, anything avant-garde, uh, anything that they thought... Uh, you know, wasn't tilling verdant fields and smiling into a glowing uh, fascist future. And, of course, jazz was uh, largely the product of uh, black musicians and uh, and Jewish musicians and composers. And I think that certainly contributed something to it. If you had a jazz record collection, were you expected to dispose of it or else get exposed by your neighbors who would rat you out? You were expected to get rid of it, and it must be said that recording culture, recording technology at that point was a lot more cumbersome, so we weren't we weren't dealing with uh, with people that had hundreds of records. But yes, you were, you, that was considered to be something that the, uh, that the state would purloin, uh, along, along, by the way, with, you know, works by Picasso, Matisse, and Kandinsky, and uh, George Brock, any anyone who was considered to be an aspect of degenerate culture. So the band that we heard, Charlie and his orchestra, was a band that was partly created by the, the Ministry of Propaganda. Um, so some of the members were the original members of a real band. The head of the band was Jewish, so they overthrew him. The the uh, the uh, the uh, a uh, a player in his orchestra named Lutz Templin for reasons I haven't been able to discover, whose nickname was Stumpy, uh, led a coup to overthrow the leader of their orchestra. Uh, the the reconfigured Lutz Templin Orchestra played, uh, played, entertained, whatever the term of art would be, at the 1936 Olympic Games in Munich, and that became the core of what became known as Charlie and his orchestra. Did anyone listen? Very few people listened. I think there were several reasons. One is, of course... If you're listening to music, uh, shortwave is an iffy technology. Uh, it, it has whoops, it has whirs, it goes in and out. And people in the United States and the United Kingdom could listen to Bing Crosby. They could listen to Doris Day. Um, they, they, they could listen to the stars that they wanted to, and they could, uh, and they could hear the music that they loved. 
I think that was one reason. Uh, I think the other reason was the, the songs were just... How do I put this? I don't. Well, there's no need to put it nicely. They were curious. I think they were listened to as as, as curiosities, but they didn't really ever generate a following. So uh, I think people might have tuned through the shortwave receiver if they were uh, searching for some kind of news from overseas, but they probably dismissed the songs. You know, the, the songs didn't say, we're coming from Berlin. This is the product of the German state. Uh, we're talking to you people in America. We're talking to you people in Great Britain. There were propaganda broadcasters who did that, but not Charlie and his orchestra. The, the whole idea of that was to kind of uh, sow doubt. And I think they fooled themselves into believing that they would somehow generate uh, a larger audience if what they did was simply play music they knew that people loved and slip in some kind of subtle uh, message of dissent in their lyrics, or not so subtle. Did the musicians in Charlie and his orchestra support the regime that outlawed their own music? You say the singer was a, a sycophant, but what about the other musicians? I think that's hard to say, and one of the many reasons is, of course, we're talking about the records of the group were, I, I think, studiously and assiduously destroyed as the Allies got closer. I think the musicians, I, as you know, I, I did a book with the late Tony Bennett, and uh, Tony, who in many ways um, got a second start in show business by singing with uh, orchestras in the U.S. occupation in Germany and including some German musicians, there was talk that they, some of the musicians with whom he worked uh, played on propaganda broadcasts, but Tony always said it was, you know, hey, kid, it was nothing they talked about because they were afraid they'd wind up on the wrong end of a rope. And uh, so, so a lot of the records, I think, just are not, are not visible. And I don't want to put myself in the position of of knowing too much at all about what their psychology was. Uh, I think they had been deprived of their livelihood. Uh, I think they they had what they must have seen as a golden and unexpected opportunity to play music that had been banned um, for a living, uh, and uh, and to do so rather than to be sent to the to as I say the Russian front. Um, so, yes, they supported the Nazi regime. But I, I, I think we must be critical of the decision they made, at the same time wondering, was it really a decision? Now, you, you covered you know, wars and conflicts in Latin America, in Bosnia. You heard propaganda in those settings. How did what you heard when you were covering war and conflict compare with the kind of musical propaganda that we're hearing today. Oh, Charlie and his orchestra was totally different when it comes to musical propaganda. Uh, we, we, what I have always heard in authoritarian governments overseas is uh, something that's very strident, something that's very pedantic, something that, uh, uh, that flatters and adulates the great leader uh, of one regime or another. Charlie didn't mention, they never mentioned Hitler, they never mentioned Goebbels. Uh, all they did was try and stick a pin in what they considered to be pompous Western leaders like Winston Churchill uh, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So um, th the other propaganda efforts that I heard were, were very strident and polemical uh, by contrast. Charlie represented something different, and that's why I found it fascinating. What do you think makes this story of propaganda during World War II so relevant today? I think we're confronting something today, you know, which which is different in, in this age of artificial intelligence. You can, using audio and video, I think you can create anything that looks real enough for an audience that will be delighted by it. And I worry about this because, of course, we're, we're living in a very divided country where increasingly people can choose any kind of view of what they call the news or what they choose to believe uh, are the facts, and social media helps divide us into those camps. And I'm really worried because you now have a look. As I was as I was writing this book, the images of Pope Francis in a in a puffy white uh, ski coat appeared, and I was amazed by how many people thought that's got to be legitimate. Now I don't I don't want to say for a moment that there's anything wrong with the Holy Father wearing a puffy white ski coat. But in any event, uh, this went viral, as we unfortunately keep saying, and a lot of people thought it was legitimate. Nowadays, 
you can create with audio image and uh, we, nowadays you can create uh, with visual image and certainly with accompanying audio uh, almost any kind of convincing imagery that you that you want. I don't want to suggest a bad idea, but it seems to me you can probably concoct uh, an Elvis Presley uh, because a lot of people still don't believe that he actually died who says, uh, let me tell you, the 2020 election was a fraud. And I think increasingly people aren't looking for a popular audience per se or a broad-based audience. They're looking for a part of the audience that they can overtake and motivate and dominate. Um, and that, to me, I think is, is one of the great dangers of our age right now, particularly in a democracy where we're supposed to uh, rely on I think a common set of facts and a common set of knowledge to reach reasonable and rational and popular decisions. And it's individual, you know, individuals make their own propaganda now. It's not just the government. Yeah. And it, oh my gosh, individuals can make their own propaganda now and, uh, you know, and can and do. And a lot of it is very nefarious. Um, and it, it absolutely worries me and stuff that I probably haven't seen because it doesn't log up with my algorithm, even as the author of a book on <laughs> called Swing Time for Hitler. <laughs> Be patient. Yeah, right. More You'd, might be coming to you soon. Yeah, uh, that, exactly. Well, Scott, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for doing this, and congratulations on the audio book. Terry, a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Scott Simon hosts NPR's Weekend Edition Saturday. His new audiobook is called Swing Time for Hitler. It's published by Scribd at scribd.com. That's S C R B D.com. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Sherrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Donato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor Betterment. The emotional build of a will-they-won't-they-love story is never chill, but your investing portfolio should be. Betterment is the investing app that lets you be totally chill about your finances. Their automated technology and tax-smart tools are easy to set up, so you can focus on navigating any will-they-won't-they-love stories that come your way. Betterment. Be invested and totally chill. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed.